Well, good, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, guys, if you would, after the service today, if you're not in a service slot, let me encourage you to come directly over to Building 6, Room 602, and I fully intend to show up today to speak to you in Life Change class. So I fulfilled my obligations at the 9 o'clock, faithfully, and Lord willing, I'll do it again. <clears throat> Please make that a, a priority if you can. So a, a couple of years ago, um, a number of our pastors went whitewater rafting. And uh, we went on the Nantahala River, and uh, this is about as daring as it got. There's one on the Nantahala, there's one barely class three rapid. And uh, that's about the only danger we encountered, although Jake Mason did mysteriously fall out of the raft. Um, there's a rumor that he was pushed. But who would do, it's pastors, who would push someone out of a raft? So, um, just saying. So anyway, I'm guessing these might be class three rapids at, at best. Um, there are places in the U.S. that run up to class five, maybe even a class six. Uh, there is a river, though, in eastern Africa called the Zambezi. And the Zambezi is the river that fuels Victoria Falls. And beneath it... When you um, raft down there, they have class 7 and, uh, and even class 8 rapids uh, down there. And there's an author, his name is Palmer Chinchin. He traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft this section of the Zambezi River. He says, we boarded our raft at the base of Victoria Falls, where massive amounts of water spill over the top of the giant falls and drop almost a thousand feet. He says the roar was deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide, 300 feet high. He said mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the, the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. He says, in the U.S., the highest class you're allowed to raft is a class 5. The Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top 7 and class 8. And so he's standing there, and he's trying to talk himself into this trip, and he's saying, well, how dangerous can this really be? And he says, well, it all became clear when our guide said, when the raft flips, there was no if the raft flips, or on the off chance that we get flipped, but when the raft flips, he went on, he says, when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. He said, you will be tempted to swim towards the stagnant water at the edge of the banks. Don't do it, because it is in the stagnant water that the crocs wait for you. This is, this is what the guy told him. They are large and they are hungry. Even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. Okay? Really good advice. <laughs> Terrifying advice. Um, but there are times when the safest place is the roughest water especially if following Jesus takes you there. And it had taken the readers of the book of Hebrews there. 
They were, best we can tell, being persecuted for following Jesus. We've talked about this before. We'll get to it eventually later this year. Chapter 10, he writes to them. He says, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So after they became Christians, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. After they became Christians, after, after, as a result of being enlightened and following Jesus, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. There were those who were in prison for Jesus. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So their property was being confiscated. The writer of Hebrews Today, he acts as our spiritual river guide, and he says to us, stay in the rough water of following Jesus. Don't drift into the shallows. There be crocs there. Or in, in his words... In chapter 2, verse 1, we saw it. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift. Lest we drift away. And today, he's going to continue those words of instruction and those those words of warning as we look at Hebrews chapter 3. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 3 today. Turn in your Bibles there. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is all that we're going to tackle today. But uh, let, let me pray for us once again as we open up our Bibles. God, help us have mercy on us. These are words we need to hear. I pray that they'd have their full effect on us, that we would not resist them, we would welcome them, and we would believe them as true as from God, for surely they are. Help us, Lord, now by your Spirit. Amen. All right, chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he starts out, he's writing to holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Again, he's writing to church folk, right? That's who, that's who he's writing to. And yet he's concerned that these, these church folk, these believers, might fail to fully consider Jesus. And as we'll see in a bit, as a result, he's cur- concerned that they might not hold fast to their faith, to their hope. And that they might, as he's already said, drift away from Jesus. It's possible. Terrifyingly possible. And suffering can cause that. Temptation can cause that. Just the hardship of following Christ can weary us and make us vulnerable to seeking relief in calmer waters. Don't do it, he says. 
We must stay faithful, and to do that, we must consider Jesus. We must remember Jesus. We must study Jesus. We must become experts on Jesus. We must reflect on Jesus, or we'll drift. We, we won't hold fast. And again, these are words for church folk. They're words for us, for believers, these are written. Those who are holy, and again, brothers and sisters are included in his remarks, and have a heavenly calling. We, he's writing to us, we are to consider Jesus. And of course, that consideration implies discipline, it means time, it means opening the scriptures daily, it means meditating on Jesus, it means pondering who he is and why he came and what he taught and what it means for us to follow him. To consider Jesus does not mean surfing Jesus like you'd surf the web okay? or like you'd scroll through social media. I'm amazed at how fast you scroll through social media. It's like your little thumb is just going. How can you read that? That's not what we're talking about. This is considering. Ken Hughes describes it this way. He says, fixing our thoughts on Jesus requires time. For true reflection cannot happen with a glance. No one can see the beauty of the country as he hurries through it on the interstate. It's only when we sit still and gaze that the landscape fills our souls. What wisdom the writer has, is pouring on the persecuted church, he says. He knew that its people's survival lay in turning their eyes away from their trials and fixing them upon Christ. This is what all of us need above everything else, he says. And, and this is why so many Christians are sick and useless and are falling by the way. We fail to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, he says to us. And he has three things that he lists right after it that seem to be at the forefront of his mind that he wants us to think about. Um, he says, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Jesus, first of all, he's the apostle of our confession. And an apostle is someone who is sent. Someone who's sent by God to bear God's message, and to do God's work. And this theme of Jesus being the one who is sent by God, the sent one, is, is prevailing in John's writing, especially the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 says, He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John chapter 4, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. John chapter 6, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Consider Jesus, the one who was sent by the Father to teach his words, to do his will, and the one that we are to believe in, the sent one of God. He also wants us to think about Jesus as our apostle and our high priest, right? It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, 
the apostle and high priest of our confession. You know, about a dozen times in the book of Hebrews, he's going to allude to Jesus as our high priest. And priest has been likened to the idea of a go-between, between the people and God, the one who offers a sacrifice so that there can be reconciliation between us and God. That's the priestly duty. But the high priest has a unique role. He was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. Um, This article says, the tenth day of the seventh month of every year, and only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. And having made a sacrifice for himself and for the people, he then brought the blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, God's throne. And he did this to make atonement for himself and the people for all the sins they committed during the year just ended. And it's this particular service that's compared to the ministry of Jesus as our high priest. We've already seen this in chapter 2, remember? Verse 17, it says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As our high priest and a merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus is the only one who can offer atonement for our sins that satisfies the wrath of a holy God against us because of our sins. Only Jesus can do this. And he says, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Study Jesus. Get to know Jesus. John Piper says, let this sink in. Consider this. This is your apostle and high priest. He is the one who, bought, who brought you a heavenly calling from God and made you a way to God. On him hangs all your hope of heaven. If you have any confidence this morning that your sins are forgiven and that you will persevere in faith and attain your heavenly calling, this confidence depends on Jesus. The greater and more more glorious he is, the greater our hope and confidence. And so the writer of Hebrews wants us to consider, earnestly consider Jesus every day, multiple times a day. I'm sure he would counsel us. What would it mean, I wonder, for you to consider Jesus more this week? This week, what would that mean for you? There is a third thing after apostle and high priest that he wants us to consider about Jesus. And really this seems to be the focal point of his, what he wants us to consider. And, and that is his faithfulness. Look again at those first two verses. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he wants us to consider Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him as apostle and as our high priest, in spite of opposition that took the form of false 
public accusations and slander, of whips and a crown of thorns, of desertion and of nails in his hands and feet, the death of a common criminal on a cross. I like the way John puts it in chapter 13. He says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He was faithful. He loved them to the end. Jesus was faithful. And at the close of the service, those of us who follow Christ will come to this table and we will remember Jesus' faithfulness. We'll, we'll reenact it as we take his body broken and his blood poured out for our sins and we'll remember that he loved us to the end, his faithfulness. Consider Jesus. Consider especially the faithfulness of Jesus. And then he does an interesting thing, though. He says that Jesus was faithful like Moses. I'm like, why Moses? Why not Abraham or Daniel or Josiah or Hezekiah or one of the big, big heroes of the old, one of the other big heroes of the Old Testament? Why Moses? Um, and it's been said by some that Moses was revered as the greatest of all Hebrews and indeed the greatest man of history. So the Jews esteemed him. And the writer here is actually quoting in Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. He's actually quoting from an Old Testament passage. He loves to do this. He's quoting this time from the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 12 verses 6 through 8 as he talks about Moses being faithful. This is, this is a real interesting passage. Um, people were bucking up against Moses' leadership at this point in time. They'd about had it with him. It's one of the grumbling times. And God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There, does that sound like Hebrews 3? Right? There's that quote. This is what he's quoting. He says, when Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Right? Moses here is declared by God to be a faithful servant. Declared by God to have more access and intimacy with God than any of the other prophets. Moses saw God's form. No one else could make that claim. He was divinely chosen by God to become the one who would deliver his people from slavery to the Egyptians. And Moses was faithful in that calling. Moses was like a priest for the people before God. He would plead with God to spare them and not to destroy them. And he was faithful in that calling. He was like a prophet who would receive words from God and bring them to the people faithfully. He was faithful in that calling. Moses pretty much was the man. Okay, He's the guy. In the eyes of many Jews, some would go so far as to suggest they wrote, they said that um, Moses was even greater than the angels, which is interesting in light of Hebrews because we've just been talking about how 
Jesus is greater than the angels. And now he says that Jesus is faithful like Moses was faithful, but he goes on beyond that comparison um, to Moses in the next two verses, in verses 3 and 4, where it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. But the builder of all things, that's God. So here he says, yes, Jesus was faithful like Moses, but he's been counted by God of worthy of more glory than Moses. We would put it this way, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. He says that Jesus is greater than Moses the way that the builder of a house is greater than the house that he or she builds, right? So, for instance, one of our famous American architects, right? Anybody know? Frank Lloyd Wright. The guy could build a house. Here's a couple of samples of his house. Frank Lloyd Wright did no work in my neighborhood, Okay. <laughs> They're not building stuff like this in Franklin County in Sherwood Forest where I, where I live. This is amazing. Uh, or consider the houses, maybe less renowned, Richard Morris Hunt. The guy could slap build a house. Um, you probably recognize this next one. Um, the Biltmore House here in, here in Asheville, North Carolina. The houses are amazing. But when you look at several of them, you think, who designed these things? Who's the builder of these houses? And the houses are amazing, but the builder gets the greater glory. Jesus is the divine builder in this analogy. And in a sense, Moses is just part of what Jesus built. He's part of the house. He's a servant in the house. Jesus over the house. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things, that's God. Professor George Guthrie writes that Jesus as God has made Moses a member of the people of Israel, and as creator is worthy of more honor and more glory than one of his creatures. Thus, the author continues to point to Jesus as God. Remember, that's how the book started. Back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, writing about the Son, who is Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high superior to the angels so these themes keep coming up Jesus is God he's the exact imprint of God's nature he's the creator God over all things you hear the echoes Jesus is greater than the angels Jesus is the builder of all things. Jesus is greater. This time he's saying Jesus is greater than Moses. Even Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. As a builder is greater than the house he built. And as a son is greater than a servant. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that a son is greater than a servant. John Piper writes that the difference between a servant and a son is that the son, by inheritance, owns the house and is lord over the house and provides for those in the house out of his wealth. But the servants don't own anything in the house, and the servants follow the word of the owner. The servants receive their provision from the owner. The son is greater than the servant. Now, there is a severe servant shortage at the Trotter house these days. Okay? We, we have no servants. Um, positions are open if you'd like to apply. But we do have workers that come in every once in a while uh, from time to time. And uh, we just had to put in a new heat pump at our house. And uh, after it was installed, it needed a little, little few more tweaks. And so I called the company, and they sent out Bob. Bob comes out, comes to my door, rings the doorbell. I let Bob in. Bob comes into the hallway. He looks at the thermostat. He plays with the thermostat. He goes under the house into my walk-in crawl space, which is that even still a crawl space? If you can walk in, is that still a crawl space? Is it a walk space? And Anyway, um, that's all Bob gets to do. Bob does his work down into whatever space, and then he leaves. Bob, Bob had rendered his service as a worker, and he, he gets no more access to my house unless I need Bob's services again. Now, contrast that with my youngest son, Josiah. Unlike Bob the servant, he now, in luxury, sprawls out on our sofa, eats ceaseless large quantities of food, watches ESPN, and enjoys the warmth of the good work of Bob. The son has privileges, glory in his own mind, <laughs> that Bob does not have, right? That the servant does not have. So as a servant, Moses was, was, a, he was, Moses was faithful. This is not to demean Moses. But the son is greater. The son is exalted. The son has privileges. The son has place that no servant can have. And, and as a servant, Moses was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, it says. Um, he's to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses was a pointer to Christ. He's just a signpost that points to Christ. That's all. Now, if you went on a trip and you went to see, this is Waterfall Day, Niagara Falls, okay, uh, our nation's greatest waterfall, probably. If you, went to, if you wanted to go see Niagara Falls, as you drove up to the entrance, you would see this sign. Okay. Now imagine that you stop there, you park your van, the kids get out, you run up to the sign, you take the obligatory selfie next to the sign, and then you, and then you turn around and you begin to look at the sign, and you point to the waterfall on the sign, and and you describe it to the kids, and you're ooing and aahing over the sign, and you enjoy the sign, and you meditate on the sign, and you consider the sign, and then you turn around and you go home. That would be tragic. And to settle for, a, for Moses, he says, even amazing Moses, the greatest man in Jewish history in the minds of many, to settle for Moses would be as tragic as settling for the sign. It was never intended to be a destination. 
It was just intended to point the way to something or to someone greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. And now the writer finishes our passage with this warning and this promise. He says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Here's the offer of treasure. We get to be God's house. We get to be a member, in a sense, of his family. We get to be under the care of a merciful and faithful high priest, of the builder of all things, of the very Son of God. We get to be part of his house. The writer entices us with that hope, but then he warns us. He says that only happens if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And Jesus is integral to that confidence. He is our hope. And if we hold fast to him, we are his house, his people, his family. But we have to hold fast. He's telling us. He's warning us. He's urging us. We have to hold fast. That's what the people of Jesus do. We hold fast to Jesus. Make sure you hold fast to Jesus because not everyone who claims Christ will. And we'll talk more about this the next passage in Hebrews, but not everyone who claims Christ will. I mean, Gosh, it's been quite a number of years. Uh, a guy stood where I stand and led worship at North Wake Church as part of our leadership. He was a, he was a religion major in college. And um, then he um, denied his faith, left the wife of his youth, and became a member of freethinkers, agnostics, atheists, and secularists of the Triangle. Make sure you hold fast. Better hold fast. Being here is not a guarantee. Hold fast. Again, Professor George Guthrie says something worth hearing well. He says, remember that the author of Hebrews is warning those who have made a confession of Christ in the past and suggests that some of their members may have fallen short. Jesus himself says that at the judgment... Some who have called him Lord will be turned away for a lack of a relationship with him, from Matthew 7. Therefore, we have no right, he says, to give assurance to those who have turned their backs on God. In fact, we should affirm, he says, their lack of assurance. We must never say, but I remember when you accepted Christ, or but you went through confirmation when you were 12. He says, using those experiences as a basis for giving them assurance of God's acceptance. We must not do that. We cannot look into a person's heart and see his or her spiritual condition. It would be better to say, since you have turned your back on God, the validity of your relationship with Christ has been called into question. You need to repent and examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. The author of Hebrews does challenge his hearers to remember their past confession of Christ. In chapter 4 and then again in chapter 10. But as a basis for faithfulness, he writes, rather than a basis for assurance. And so he says, and we are his house. 
if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, who is Christ. So the writer says we must consider Jesus, especially his faithfulness as the one sent by God to be our faithful and merciful high priest. And as we think of Jesus' faithfulness before us and for us, we are helped in our own calling to be faithful members of God's house, to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, which is no one other than Jesus himself. The clearer our focus on Jesus, the more accurate our understanding, the better we know him, the more we think and reflect and study and get to know him, especially his faithfulness as he endures the cross, the greater will be our faithfulness and trust in him. The more staying power we'll have when following him leads us into rough waters. We want to know Jesus truly. Truly and rightly. We want to have what you could call good Christology, good doctrine of Christ. But we also want to know him relationally as our brother and Jesus says, even as our friend. In John 15, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And through the book of the writer of the book of Hebrews here, Jesus is commanding us to consider him. Consider him as our apostle and our high priest, and to consider his faithfulness as he goes to the cross and hold fast to him. What does it mean for you to consider Jesus more this week? Writer Calvin Miller has a good warning for us. He says, one barrier to full intimacy with the Savior is hurriedness. He says, intimacy may not be rushed. Holy living is not abrupt living. No one who hurries into the presence of God is content to remain for long. Those who hurry in, hurry out. And so our spiritual river guide is warning us today. He's saying, consider Jesus. It's the only way to hold fast to our hope and by his grace we can we can even when the rapids are strong Ethel Herr is a writer and she was stricken with breast cancer and had a double mastectomy and two months later doctors discovered that the cancer had spread and one of, one of her friends Shocked and fumbling for words, asked her, and how do you feel about God now? And she reflected on the moment that question was posed to her, and this is what she said, and it's so helpful. She says, as I sought to explain what, was hap- what has happened in my spirit, it all became clearer to me. God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways I've never known before. He has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given to me joy such as I've never known before, and I have no need to work at it. It just comes, even amidst the tears. He has taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. And he planned it all in such a way that step by step, he prepared me for the moment when the doctor dropped the last shoe. 
God is good no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither. The key, she says, to knowing God is good is simply knowing Him. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And so as we approach this table today, we are remembering how merciful and faithful a high priest Jesus was and is for us. And we remember his faithfulness. We remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. And so as you come to this table today, as one who believes and trusts and hopes in Jesus, we remember that he is our apostle and he is our high priest. And we remember his faithfulness as he went to the cross and he loved us to the end. Would you bow with me, please? Jesus, give us good remembrance of you now. Give us good remembrance of you, of your faithfulness, and how you loved us to the end. That even desertion and betrayal and abandonment and mockery and abuse and violence and nails and the cross could not stop you from being our faithful apostle and high priest. And so together now as your people, we remember you, Jesus, as you ask us, and we worship you. Strengthen us that we might stand fast, hold fast to you.